Your seats. Good morning, family. How are you? Man, it's good to see you. Uh, I had to have a little moment then to recover from Josh's offering message. I, I thought that was outstanding, Joshua. Thank you for sharing that with us. What a story, hey? We never know in the chain of giving what can happen because of what we do. Well, that's very pertinent to me at the moment and to my beautiful wife, Danielle, who you heard from earlier, because uh, we've been off doing all sorts of things on your behalf, representing you in all sorts of ways and places. As you know, our church is planning a church in Darwin at the moment, and uh, Danielle and I have the great joy, the we're carrying our cross, aren't we, Dan? Uh, and uh, we alternate one week in Darwin, one week in Alice while we're getting that um, church going off the ground. And we've got a bunch of young people there and a small group of people. Uh, it's pretty cool. We're reaching people no one else is reaching. And I can't wait for the day to hear one of them on the platform saying, who could have known where this was going to go when a church in Alice Springs decided that from the heart of the nation, we would have a heart for the nations. And uh, so not only have we been representing you in Darwin, but we got to uh, go on a mission trip recently recently to Thailand to meet with all of our global field workers and all of our partners and uh, address them, speak to them, encourage them, strengthen their arm, take them for some food. Hey, Danielle, not catch COVID with them. That was pretty cool. And again, uh, just so many of them wanted me and Danielle to pass on our thanks to you guys for the support and the friendship and the relationship as we as a church are literally touching lives all around the world. Isn't it amazing? Hey, little outback town of Alice Springs, but we have a global interest and a global reach and a global influence. And that is because of you. It's because of your participation in the life of our church and what we are able to do together. And if you're new or visiting, uh, then you can see on our back wall, there's a, there's a map up there that shows you all the different spots where we have global partnerships and where we're doing mission together. We sort of don't just give a whole bunch of, you know, millions of people, $1 each, but what we really do is we focus our giving to make sure that it makes a significant difference in the fields where it goes. And we know all of those people personally. Uh, we have, sort of have very good best practices behind how we support mission and what our friends uh, around the world are doing. And the exciting news is while we're in Thailand, we did get to catch up with Pastor Mez and James, who are obviously our latest field workers to be sent out to Timor-Leste. That's East Timor in English, and uh, they're living in Dili right now. And uh, what is amazing is several of our church members are going over there in the uh, next few weeks. Two have already gone. One's moved there. Her husband's about to move there, and uh, a couple others are going over there for a short visit as well. So it's amazing what God's doing, isn't it? Just connecting this highway between Alice Springs, Darwin, and Dili. And uh, we can have a DLC in every city that starts with a D. That's pretty cool, isn't it? I'm going to share God's Word with you today, and I'm going to depart from the series our team have been doing. And by the way, I super appreciate our preaching team and their messages over the last few weeks. I've watched all of them, and I just thought our team have done an absolutely outstanding job of teaching. If you've missed what's been going on, get onto our YouTube channel, and you can have a look at our recent series. All year, all we've been doing is just basking in who Jesus is. And we've gone through Matthew, we've gone through Mark, and then a few weeks ago, we started this journey through Luke, just basking in how these Gospels portray Jesus to us and sort of select Selecting a different thing each week and focusing on what the gospel writers want us to bask in about Jesus. It has been amazing. It's certainly done my heart good. What about you? Excellent. Well, today we're going to depart from it because there's something I really want to talk to you about. And our team graciously uh, gave me a free kick this morning and said, Master Ben, you don't have to do the series that we're part of. Um, why don't you just share with whatever's on your heart? And I'll tell you what's on my heart. It's been on my heart for a number of months to do with our church, and I've really been meditating on it and basking in it. Um, and it's a scripture verse that changed my life. Now, I just want to pause for a second. 
I know in churches like ours, we, you know, we advertise a muffin sale outside and say, oh, it's going to change your life, don't we? You know, life change is sort of one of those uh, cliched phrases that people talk about all the time, don't they? It'll change your life. And we use it from toothpaste, you know, through to spreadsheeting or something like that. It'll change your life. But, you know, how many times in life has something actually caused you to change? Just think about it. For most people, it's not that many, really. You don't change that much, do you? Most people don't have dramatic life-changing turns. And I'm going to share with you and talk to you today from a scripture that literally caused me to change the direction of my life. And towards the end of the message, I might give you a bit of detail about what that is. But before we get to the scripture, I need to introduce you to a couple of people. This is Michael Carroll. (laughs) When Michael Carroll was 19 years old, he spent one pound, which is $2.50 at the time, on a lottery ticket in the UK. Well, he won. And he won 9.7 million pounds. In the year 2001, that was worth 25.2 million Australian dollars. How many people think that's a pretty good investment? I'm not encouraged you to go out and buy a lottery ticket, but spend two bucks fifty, get 25 million. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Well, what was interesting, and here's a picture of Michael Carroll. He squandered it all. He spent it on alcohol, drugs. Clearly, you can see he's a bit of a Mr. T fan. He spent it on jewellery and he partied, which saw him burn through his cash in 12 years, arriving at exactly zero dollars in the bank. He was dubbed the Lotto Lout. 12 years after his win, he was bankrupt and penniless. Incredible, huh? This is Clarissa Dixon Wright. You may remember her from the show Two Fat Ladies. And it was a cooking show where they would travel around the place in their motorbike and all this sort of stuff. But in the 1970s, Clarissa Wright inherited 2.8 million pounds upon the death of her mother. She was also one of the UK's youngest women ever to go to the bar. That doesn't mean to buy a beer. That means to become a lawyer in the UK. She was the youngest person to ever be appointed by, to the bar, the youngest female to be appointed to the bar in the UK in the 70s. She inherits this 2.8 million bucks from her mum, and yet within 12 years, because she had spiralled into drug use, partying, profligate spending, and severe life-damaging drinking, within 12 years, not only was she penniless and homeless, but she had been disbarred from the Bar Association because of her behaviours. I want you just to think about those two stories. Isn't it true, as humans, no matter how great what we have is, we're really in danger of blowing it, aren't we? We're really in danger of blowing it. We're in danger of devaluing something great because sometimes stuff just comes easy. You've heard the phrase, right? Easy come. That's right. And we would look at people like Michael or Clarissa and say, oh, man, you shouldn't. Man, if I was in your shoes, can I tell you something? I've been a person for a few years. And uh, I've been a pastor for a few, a few years. And I have to say that for many people that I've ever met, many of us are not going to do it much different in these people's shoes. You know how I know that? Because you and I, friends, we may not have won the lottery. 
We may not have inherited a million bucks from someone, but we have in our possession things of great value. And I see people all the time waste those things. Now, it would be fine if it's just money, easy come, easy go. But you know what's worse than blowing a million bucks? Blowing your potential. You know what's worse than blowing a, a, a financial inheritance? Blowing the inheritance that you've been given by your Father in heaven. Squandering your birthright. You know, I'd submit to you that you may not have won a million bucks, you may not have inherited a million bucks, but as a follower of Jesus, you have a birthright. The title of my message today is Don't Squander Your Birthright. Just turn to the person next to you and say, yeah, that's a good idea, don't squander your birthright. I want you to think about this. Gee, that took a long time for you to say that sentence. You're all like, where do I get a gold chain like that guy there back there before? That looked like it weighed three kilos. You know, the New Testament speaks consistently and constantly of the birthright that we have in Jesus. And we're invited into something. We're invited into something which will change our identity and give us a new one. We're invited into something that will enhance the best bits of our humanity and in fact make us more human than we've ever been before. We're invited to something that gives us a way to make a unique and meaningful contribution to the universe, to our family, to our church, to society at large, to the kingdom of God. We're invited into something that grants us a status and a position and a value that is of profound worth. The New Testament speaks so many different ways about it. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Listen to what John says. To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave, listen to this, the right to become children of God. The right to become children. He gave the right to become children of God. You have inherited something profound. And I don't know, and I I, actually I do know because I've spent a lot of time in pastoral counselling with people. I know a lot of people carry this sense, I don't deserve to be God's child. Listen to what John says. Well, it kind of doesn't matter if you deserve it any more than it matters if at your birthday your friends and family give you gifts. And when you get that gift, you say, give us the receipt, I'll reimburse you for it. I know sometimes you think, actually, that wouldn't be too bad. Then I might give you a VCR player, which would be weird because you'd have to go to an antique shop to get one. A gift is received gratefully and responded to with gratitude and joy, isn't it? So if I stick my hand in my wallet and hand over my Amex card, not that I have one, but if I had one, then what would that would be weird, wouldn't it? Be throwing your gift back in your face. And this is what John says, that God as gift to everyone who says yes to Jesus grants you a status, gives you a gift, and here it is, you have the right to be a child of God. The fact that that doesn't excite or interest or inspire some of us, and I could stop preaching now if it did, just goes to show how it's possible for you and I to have something of profound value, but consider it valueless. Valueless. The right to become a child of God is life 
changing for you and I. Listen to what Paul says. He wrote to the Ephesians and he was trying to deal with all sorts of crazy stuff. He says to the Ephesians, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, listen to this, in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Who has blessed us. Oh God, I pray that you'd bless me. You're already blessed. The issue is not that you're blessed. The issue is what you're walking into in your inheritance. That's an issue. Has blessed with a couple of good stuff. No. Every. Every. Sit in it. Every. You know, every, um, every means every. Every mean, means like nothing's not included in that. If we have a fire in the building now, other than the fire of God, hallelujah, then, then we would say everyone out. And it doesn't mean, well, just a couple of you stay if you want. In spite of what you think about the people in your row. Every. Every, every, you have been blessed by God with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Come on, man, if that doesn't get you out of bed with a bright eye and a bushy tail, you know why it would be? It would be like someone, easy come, easy go. I got 2.8 million bucks from my mum and it doesn't matter if I blow it all. I won the lotto and it doesn't matter if I blow it all on trivial pursuits. Imagine really living like someone who walks into every atmosphere. I have the right to be the child of God. Imagine being someone who wakes up and your feet hit the floor every day and you understand I have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. I could do an hours and hours and hours of message just on that scripture. I'm going to give, just give you one thing before we move on. Every spiritual blessing. One of the great problems, of course, in the modern world is when we say the word spiritual, we think what we're really saying is like airy-fairy, ethereal, invisible, nothing to do with reality, transcendent and metaphysical. That's not what this word means, spiritual blessing. Every time you see this word spiritual in the New Testament, it's the Greek word. As you know, this wonderful document, we have it translated in English, but came to us in ancient Greek. And in that ancient Greek, that Koine Greek, the word spiritual is the word pneumatikos. And the way when you put an ekos on the end of any word in ancient Greek, what it is, is it's putting an apostrophe S on it. If I want to say that's Ben's table, it would be that's, that table is Benikos, Ben's table. If you wanted to come to our family gathering and they'd say, whose problems are all these? They'd say, those are Benikos problems. All Ben's problem. That's right. That's what happens in our house because I'm the only bloke. So I get blamed for everything and I get interrupted before a sentence is finished coming out of my mouth. I'm still being corrected because these people are so spiritual. They're having words of knowledge of what I'm going to say wrong next. It's called having teenagers, isn't it? Benikos. Well, this, these blessings are pneumatikos. The word pneuma means spirit. Ikos means apostrophe. Yes, blessings that belong to the spirit. That's what that verse means. In fact, if I had to translate this, I'd never translate it spiritual blessings. I'd translate it capital S, spirit blessings. 
So now think about what Paul is saying. Praise God, he's doing a ditty, man. He's doing a ditty. And by the way, in this context, in in Ephesians 1, Paul writes a sentence without punctuation that is 114 words long. And that just demonstrates for you just how darn excited he is about this idea. This is the first line of the sentence. Praise God, he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heaven. Every spirit blessing is mine. Don't you think it would change the way that you pray and the way that you live if you truly, truly lived into and walked into your inheritance as a child of God? Every blessing of the Holy Spirit God has already made available to me. Listen to what Paul says in, later in the chapter, in verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 1. He's praying for the Ephesians. He understands, man, it takes us a whole lifetime of rehab to wrap our head around some of these truths, doesn't it? Listen to what he says. I I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That means the Holy Spirit's got to do something in you because this is not a truth you can accept with your mind. This is revelation. The lights have to come on for you. You We need a work of God in our lives to give us revelation on this truth. The, The eyes of our mind, the eyes of our heart have to be enlightened. We require enlightenment to grasp this, friends. And some of us are living unenlightened lives. I keep asking that he would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know. Listen to this. Paul is asking you to pursue enlightenment. I pray the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. And if you experience that revelation, if you experience that enlightenment, there are primarily two things you would know. So that you would know the hope to which he has called you. Everybody say called. Turn the person next to you and say calling. That you would know the hope to which he has called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Turn the person next to you and say inheritance. If you're sitting with no one next to you, just say, inheritance. Two things, calling and inheritance. You, I pray that you'd get a revelation, Paul says. I pray that you'd be enlightened, that you'd experience enlightenment, that, that you would know your calling, that you would know your inheritance. See, we can point the finger at Michael and Clarissa that blew their inheritance, but here's the big question. What are you doing with yours? What have you been doing with yours? What are you doing with your calling? What have you been doing with your calling? Now, I am not for a moment suggesting that if you're a teacher or an ambulance driver or a bricklayer or a security guard or a police officer or a garbologist, I'm not suggesting you have to stop doing any of that and become a Christian church pastor. In fact, unless you've had a lot of previous sin and God has to punish you, you won't have to have that experience, don't worry. Um, But if you're called to be a pastor, you should. And if you're called to be a teacher, you should. And if you're not called to be a teacher, you shouldn't. God has an inheritance for us. God has a calling for us. You know, I mean, the truth is on every page of the New Testament is an articulation of the profound inheritance we have as God's people. But let me just give you a summary from really all I've done is I've done what you do when you go to one of those amazing, amazing, expansive buffets where pre-pandemic you weren't scared to eat the food. And you go along and just have a little scoop of about everything to see what it's like. Listen, we've just done a sampling. Have a look what, what, what Paul says. Have a look at a, at a sample space of our inheritance in God. And I, there's so much stuff I haven't even gotten into. We have the right to be children of God. 
You know, when you say yes to the gospel, you're not committing to a lifetime of religion. You're committing to a new status where the creator of the universe counts you as part of his family, as a loving, caring father and says, you are my child. We are blessed with every spirit blessing in heavenly places. Everything that belongs to the Holy Spirit is made available to you. The question is not its availability. The question is, what are you doing with the availability of the Spirit in your life? And the answer for many of us is, not always a lot. Not said judgmentally. I just know. Because this sermon's a warning to me like it's a warning to you. We have a divine calling. We have it as the people of God. We have it. God has a divine calling for Desert Life Church. And our big question is, what do we as a church do with the calling that God has given us? We, our eldership has wrestled and our leader, senior leader, Pastor Wayne Alcorn, myself, our team, we have wrestled for five years with the fact that we knew five years ago God spoke to us about Darwin. We just didn't have any idea how we would make it happen. And we've wrestled and wrestled and wrestled and talked and talked and talked. And then earlier in the year, we had a big half-day roundtable chat and still couldn't solve the problem and came up with the least worst idea. Let's just do something. We can't do nothing. Well, we can't even do much. But we, well, we can do something. Let's just do what we can do. How many people know that's how you walk into the inheritance that God has you for? You don't wait till you have all the pieces. You start stepping it out now. You do what you have with what's in your hand. You do what you can. Let God worry about what you can't. Remember the uh, loaves and fishes story? We have a divine calling. We have one as a church. Listen, you have one as an individual. I'm going to say that again and give you the chance to give me an amen for what is a really good thought. Thank you, Janet. You have a calling as an individual. You know, amen in Hebrew, amen. It means, let it be so. It's a vocalization of agreement. You have a divine calling. Well, then let it be so. Let it be so. One of the most fruitful and productive things that you can do as a human being is turn your radar to the future and say, God, what are you calling me to? Who are you calling me to be? What are you calling me to do? What is your call for me? Sometimes it changes from season to season. God calls you into new things. He calls you, get out of that boat that's become comfortable and get out on the water. Sometimes he calls you out of the boat and says, come back on the shore and, and dine with me. There's all sorts of things that happen. But the point is, when was the last time you sat down and earnestly processed in prayer, with fasting, maybe with seeking God? God, am I aware that you have a calling for me? Some of us, this is a bit of a newsflash. You have a calling. And I hope if you're a grown-up that your career path and your preparation and your study has a sense of overlap with your divine calling. But I know it doesn't for everybody. Here's the truth. A lot of time, God's call wrecks stuff. You know, before I followed God's call to become a pastor, I had money. <laughs> I was self-employed in business. And no one really knew this at the time, but I just said yes to whatever I wanted to say yes to. And I said no to whatever I wanted to say no to. And you know who complained about that? No one whose calls I answered. Oh, no, I just did whatever I want. Remember, we wanted to take time off, so we just took time off. Danielle would just tell me, can you come home at two because I need to go somewhere? I'd just come home at two because she needs... I could do whatever I wanted. Whatever I wanted. Yeah, now I'm a pastor. <laughs> and I have teenagers. 
I can't do what I want to do now. Um, God's call will cost you some. You have, to, you have to make a trade. You have to make a trade. Pursue God's call. Then I'm out on the water, man. I don't always know how it's going to work. I don't always know what's going to happen. But not only that, pursue God's call. Then I might not always get everything the way I want it. How many people can join my therapy group? This is my therapy group. The God of the universe doesn't always take into account my advice in the management of the universe. How about you? God just does whatever God wants. And like constantly reminds you, Ben, I've been running the universe a long time. Um, we have a divine calling. We have a rich inheritance in God's people. This word inheritance, everyone say inheritance. What's fascinating about Paul's use of inheritance in the book of Ephesians, of course, is that inheritance is the word reserved in the Old Testament for what God was bringing the people of Israel to when he took them into the promised land. Okay? They had an inheritance. It's the same word. And Paul, especially all the way through Ephesians, you could look at Ephesians as it being like the, the, the Exodus and Joshua of the New Testament. It is all about how you come into the new land. That's why he's excited. You've got every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. What he's really saying is there's a land flowing with milk and honey for you, baby. Uh, and so when he talks about this thing, inheritance, he's saying what the people of Israel had, they had to leave Egypt to go into the promised land. And now what you have to do is you have to leave life without Christ, the old me, the human me, the old man, the old woman. You, you have to leave that and you've got to come into your new future, come into your spirit life, come into the blessed life. You've got to come into your calling and you have a land flowing with milk and honey there. But see, remember the story about the Israelites. They didn't all go in. And they didn't go in because God didn't want them to go in. They went, didn't go in because it was too hard to go in. Well, well, there's giants in that land. Yeah, there's a wrestle. Oh, man, we are like grasshoppers in our own sight. I mean, think about the profound psychology of the book of Exodus. Telling us what would be our problem that Freud and Maslow and others would minister to us for in hundreds and hundreds of years later. And right back in Exodus, we see the number one barrier to God's people walking into their inheritance. I am like a grasshopper in my own sight. You have an inheritance in God's people. You have a, a, a promised land and, and Paul links it to God's people. That means we, we together have it, friends. So those aren't the ideas that change my life, though. Those are the intro, the warm-up. It's the like warm-up massage for the ideas that change my life. Here's the profound idea that changed my life. I rang my spiritual father this week. His name's Pastor Wayne Alcorn. He's our senior pastor in this church, and he pastors Hope Centre in Brisbane, formerly Glad Tidings Tabernacle, Josh. Um, and when they have revival, they'll return to that name. Don't worry, don't worry. And uh, I've been going to church one or two weeks when Pastor Wayne Alcorn preached on the passage I'm about to preach on. And I rang him and had a conversation. I said, can you remind me about the stuff that you said? Now, what is hilarious is he didn't have the faintest idea about that message. He'd lost his notes these days. Everything's on iPad. This is still back like when you used, you know, these old things called pencil and paper to do sermon prep. But we knew the scripture, so we had a chat about the scripture. Here's the scripture. It comes to us in Genesis chapter 25. That is the 25th chapter of Genesis, okay? And here is what it says. Okay, 
Isaac, Genesis chapter 25, verse 22. Abraham inherited this call, you will be a blessing to the nations. I'm going to start something fresh with you. You're going to go, you're going to become a, a mighty people. Okay, good. He dies. He passes the blessing on to his son, Isaac. Abraham goes. Isaac comes on the scene. He's supposed to carry forward Abraham's amazing call, and he's inherited everything from Abraham. He's inherited Abraham's wealth, which he was wealthy. He's inherited his tents, his cattle, his servants. Abraham died a king. And the kingdom has been passed on to Isaac. This is a story about inheritance. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. And the Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. Hallelujah. And the babies jostled each other within her. So I love it when the Bible rushes over stuff. So this lady is 60 years old, by the way, behind the text. She's 60 years old. She couldn't get pregnant. He prays to the Lord. She gets pregnant. There may be other steps of involved in that process that doesn't enlighten us. But then it skips over taking for granted this profound truth. She's not just pregnant. She's got two babies. And she doesn't know. The, 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 uh, the babies jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? That means, see, they didn't have ultrasound in those days and all this sort of stuff. So, so she's feeling t- turmoil within her womb. And she's saying, why am I having this turmoil in my room? Come on, now, how many pregnant ladies? You've done it before, haven't you? Why is this happening to me? Go into, your wife goes into labor. She's suddenly mad at you. You did this to me. Why is this happening to me? Listen, to this. so she went and inquired of the Lord. She went and inquired of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. Remember, God had said that he would make Abraham a mighty nation, but that all of the nations would be blessed. That means what started with Abraham would flow out to all of the nations of the earth. His son, Isaac, is now the beginning of this. First of all, there's going to be two nations. Abraham went from a kingdom to two nations. Two nations are in your room. Two peoples from within you will be separated. And one people will be stronger than the other. And the older will serve the younger. You probably know the story. Listen to this. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. And the first to come out was red. And his whole body was like a hairy garment. I love this description. Imagine visiting that family in hospital. What do you say to someone when you go to see their children and their children aren't cute? (laughs) That brilliant idea. That is good. You know, I'm a pastor, so from time... I don't really do any hospital visits these days because our team handles it all, but sometimes I do get to um, visit someone in hospital that's had a child. And, you know, man, I mean, what I mostly say is, wow, it's got a round head. Ours look like pyramids when they came out, man. It was so crazy. But, um, but yeah, what do you say? What are you going to say the day you visit someone in hospital and their child is red and hairy like a garment? You understand, this is the day where they coarsely wove homespun fabric or killed animals and made garments out of their clothing. So what they're really saying is, man, that thing looks like a cow skin. And that's why they call him Esau, Eshaw. That means hairy. (laughs) Look how hairy he is. Let's call him hairy. They'll make a movie about him one day. Dirty hairy. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping at Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. 
First of all, surprise, you're having twins. Secondly, one of them's red and hairy, just call him hairy. The second one, when they, when they both come out, he's holding his brother. You know, this, you have to understand the, the drama and the tension that has already been built into the tale of these two babies, okay? I mean, just imagine, this is like a scene from, that you're expecting Sigourney Weaver to come in, you know. They come, a little, little red hairy thing comes out, but then his brother is grasping him by the heel, trying, grabbing him, oh, I'm going to pull him back. Not, not you first, me first. That's the idea. He's grasping his brother's heel. And of course, as you know, if you, if you um, go on to read the whole biography of these two, which we're not going to do today, you'll see that that, that early action, grasping his brother's heel, becomes a life pattern for him, which is so funny. And why would he grasp at his brother's heel? Well, he's a baby, he doesn't know what he's doing, but the idea is that that's seen as a harbinger of the future. It's seen as almost a prophetic declaration. Well, watch these two in the future because red hairy fella's got something going on and so is little heel grasper over there. And of course, this would be seen to be weird in the the ancient culture because even with twins, right? Twins in our society, like you're probably just seen as equal, okay? But if you know any twins, have you ever heard twins argue about the one that was five minutes earlier? Respect your elders. I was, I'm the firstborn. Well, these are, these are twins, but one is born before the other. That makes the one born before the other the firstborn. Because he's the firstborn, that means he will inherit his father's kingdom. Everybody in the family gets something. Two kids, eight kids, 20 kids, doesn't matter. They'll all get something. But the first pawn, he gets the somethingest. He gets the most. This is what happens. Okay, there's two kids in this story. So out of these two kids, the father's inheritance will be divided into three. But there's only two kids, yeah, because the firstborn gets a double portion. We divide the kingdom into three, financially speaking. The wealth is divided into three. But the firstborn gets two of those shares. The nextborn gets one. If there's 10 kids, the inheritance is divided by 11, and the firstborn gets two shares, everybody else gets one. One person gets double what everybody else gets. If you've got 20 kids, the amounts begin to seem insignificant. If you've got two kids, the amounts are very significant. Not only do you inherit dad's wealth, but check this out. This is a nomadic tribal culture. Dad is a king. He's a tribal king, a tribal chieftain. When dad dies, not only does the firstborn get two shares of the wealth, the firstborn becomes the new tribal chieftain. He gets the stuff and he gets to be in charge. He gets to make decisions. He gets to rule the roost, the birthright. What will be passed on to the firstborn will will be two shares of the wealth, but then the right to rule and reign. By the way, the New Testament will constantly look backwards to the idea of the birthright that we have in Christ because of this very idea that comes to us from the ancient world, that we inherit something when we come into Christ. And because we inherit something, we get to rule and reign with Jesus. But that's another story for another time. So, he, he, so you can see what's going on in this story. It's like this little, he's grabbing his brother's heel. What that really means is you better watch him in the future because he's trying to, he was trying to reef him back and be the first one out the door. He wanted to be the firstborn and that will become something that becomes something. Okay, okay, let's see now. That's not the right one. That's not the right one. 
Okay, okay, here we go. Now we're getting to the good stuff. The boys grew up, okay, so this is now fast forward. They're two little babies are coming out of their womb. Now they grow up. Fast forward biography. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful, what? A skillful hunter. He became a skillful hunter and a man of the open country. Everybody say open country. He, he, he was like, you know, don't fence me in, baby. He was a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. While Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Give me a home amongst the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Okay, this, this verse represents a crucial piece of revelation of the turning point in biblical history and biblical biography. Here it is. They grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, I just want you to sort of picture this, okay, because we're getting, we're, we're, we're getting a, a sketch, we're getting a portrait. Have you ever heard of inner city Melbourne hipsters? Inner city Melbourne hipsters, they dressed like lumberjacks, but they would never pick up an axe. They dress rugged country style, but they are found drinking a soy decaf, double half calf latte in an inner city urban thing. I love this meme. I'm so glad I don't have to actually hunt. I have no idea where gluten-free tacos live. <laughs> inner city hipsters. <laughs> then, of course, there's the people of the open field. Who, who loves uh, Stephen Ranella off the TV show Meat Eater? I love this show. I love the open field. I love Alice Springs. By the way, if some rumours have circled back to me that our ministry in Darwin is a harbinger that Dan and I are trying to leave Alice Springs and go to Darwin. So if you're my friend, just like squash that. That is not what the plan is. I'm a man of the open field, man. I ain't going to those Darwin inner city hipsters. Um, oh, what about these two? <laughs> if there are two more alphas on the planet, I haven't met them. Jocko Willing and Joe Rogan. And on this particular podcast, they both go hunting together, bow hunting to kill and eat deer. Now, think about the two contrasts. These two and, 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 and these two, okay? And that's somewhat of what you see in this text, or at least traditionally that's how the text has been read. One of them's a man of the open field. He's a man of the wilderness. He's the rugged man. He likes to get out there and hunt. The other one, like, he's just sort of a homebody he likes to stay home among the tents. He, he, and then, of course, the parents. The parents, um, they, they, they set up this, this weird rivalry because the, there's the country boy and the city boy and dad loves the country boy because dad has a taste for wild game. Dad likes the hunter, but mummy likes the homebody. There's daddy's boy and mummy's boy. There's the ruffian and the mild-mannered one. Make sense? Here's the crucial lesson that you have to internalise from this passage. Appetites threaten birthrights. Appetites threaten birthrights. Look at the footnote of the story. Isaac had a taste for wild game. Isaac has an appetite. And his appetite is for wild game. And he has two sons. And one of those sons is more like him than the other one. That son knows dad likes wild game. I'm going to go get dad what dad likes. And he has a taste for wild game. Now, the way Hebrews tell stories is they almost never give you imperative. They don't say, right, here's the instructions. This is what you do. 
They're sophisticated. Hebrews tell you stories and hope that as you meditate upon the story, you develop wisdom and revelation that you understand. And in this story, we're being set up to draw the conclusion, appetites threaten birthrights. It begins with Isaac. He has a taste for wild game. In the Hebrew, what it literally says is, and the taste of hunting was in his mouth. That's what it means. The taste of, he had a taste for hunting. He had a taste for wild game. He, he loved getting out and about. Now think about this, okay? This is what hunting is, and I do it. You go out to the bush, and you chase a non-domesticated animal, and you somehow try to stop it from escaping. And sorry if you're vegan. And you somehow try to stop it from living, and then you somehow try to stop it from being all in one piece, and then you somehow try to conserve it so you can take it home and stop it from being raw. That's called cooking. And then stop it from sitting there, you eat it. And then you stop it from sitting there, you can you draw your imagination about the rest of things. Hunting, okay. This is a nomadic society. In a nomadic society, they have tents, not buildings. As you can see, he, he, he was content to stay home among the tents. That doesn't mean he was really like a, you know, a softie or a mama's boy. This is a nomadic society. In a nomadic society, this is what happens. You don't um, draw your living or your dining from going out chasing non-domesticated animals. You've got a more efficient practice. The more efficient practice is have herds of animals that you domesticate. Feed them in the same locations, water them in the same locations, then you don't have to chase them because they come to you. And then when they come to you, just choose one that looks tasty and you kill it and you eat it. It's efficiency. That's how you survive. That's the birth of civilization was the transition from hunting, gathering to nomadic lifestyles. Because why? Well, now we don't have to go and find the animals. The animals come to us. It sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? So think about this. Have a look. Jacob stays home among the tents. What that means is Jacob is content with the nomadic lifestyle. Jacob is content. I, 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 will, I will put up the tents and collapse the tents and then we'll move on and I'll understand the terrain and the conditions and the calendar of the year and where we should go. I'll understand how to feed the animals. I'll understand how to water the animals. And when they come to me, I'll understand how to attract them and then I'll understand how to kill them and care for them. So he's not, it's not really strictly true that he's like the soft mama's boy and the other one's the manly, manly one. Okay, What it really is, is one of them doesn't like that. I don't want to set up tents and pack down tents. I don't want to water animals and feed animals. I don't want to attract the animals and care for them and look after them. You know what I'd rather do? I want to leave this all behind and I want to get out into the open field where there's no work for me to do. I want to get out in the open field where I don't have to do any of this stuff. And I want to just get out there by myself and walk around and maybe sneak up on something that no one else really even would eat. I want to find that thing because that's the thing I have an appetite for. Don't give me every day. Don't give me hard work. Don't give me responsibility. Don't give me predictability. Don't give me the calendar. Don't give me the jobs. Don't give me, have you done this? Have you done that? It's Wednesday. Water the camels. I want to leave it all behind and I want to get out somewhere else where I don't have the constraints of all that. Dad likes doing it as well. Well, of course, they, they've inherited a kingdom from Abraham. They have servants to do everything. And that's what you've got to understand all the way through Genesis. Abraham's kingdom grows. They have servants to do everything. They don't have to do anything. But Jacob is content to work in the nomadic lifestyle. Esau doesn't want a bar of it. He wants to get out to the bush and not have any responsibility. He has a taste for it. And he either got the taste from his dad or it was just genetics or luck or he knew dad likes it, I'm going to do what dad likes. 
what we love, what we long for, and what we yearn for shapes us and determines our destiny. The biographies of all biblical characters are illustrations of character and destiny being determined by loving, longing, and yearning. What you have an appetite for, you will chase. And you will be defined by that thing that you chase. Remember this guy's story? Remember this guy's story? Key moments of destiny governed by choices, governed by priorities, governed by values. Not the values they held, the values they squandered. Not the birthright they inherited, the birthright they squandered because they chased their appetites. Remember this guy's story? A completely different one. Values, priorities, choices made, not my will be done, but yours. Inherited a birthright and walked it out. Why? To share that birthright with others to whoever receives him. He gave the right to become children of God. So this early part of the story sets up for what follows next. Remember, appetites threaten birthrights. Let's say it together. Appetites threaten birthrights. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, this is the adult story, the next bit. When Jacob was cooking some stew, (laughs) Jacob is cooking stew. Esau came in from the open country famished. And the Hebrew word means starved, half starved to death, greatly weary, depleted of all resources. That's what happens when you go out chasing something. (laughs) He came in from the open country and he came in. He'd been off out there doing everything. But guess what? Back home, we got food. Back home, we got structure. Back home, it's hard work, but there's stew cooking. And he came in and he was starved, which is always what happens when we're out chasing fantasies. (laughs) He said to Jacob, quick. Let me have some of that red stew. Actually, in the Hebrew, it says, quick, stuff that into my face. Literally, that's what the Hebrew means. And what would happen is sometimes when they were trying to fatten animals in this nomadic culture, they would tie them to a post and they would literally grab food and stuff it in their mouth to make them chew it and eat it down. They're not just walking around in the desert eating grass that's growing. So they're literally stuffing grain into their mouth, stuffing it in, stuffing it in. And that verb, stuff the food into my mouth, that's what Esau says to Jacob. Quick, stuff that red stew into my face. Stuff it in. (laughs) I'm famished. And that's why he was called Edom. Now, there's a bit of a trick in this story. And here's the trick, okay. The stew is red lentil stew. Red lentil stew. And in the Hebrew, it's not called red stew, it's called red, red stuff. It's called cha'idim, 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 okay? Red, red stuff. Red, red. Quick, put that red, red stuff. It doesn't have any articulation. We, you know, for, for ease of translation, they make it stew, but really because it says it's later stew. But here, it's just red stuff. Whatever that red stuff is, stuff it in my face. There's a, there's a comical element to it. He is starved. You know when you're hungry, almost anything seems good? Here's a taste for wild game. Here's a, here's a taste for the hunt. But he comes in, and by the way, this is, 
This is probably the first story of someone being undone by vegan cooking, by the way. He's a man of the open field and he came back, he has a taste for game, but he's not getting his needs met by what he's out doing. And so when he comes back, he says to his brother, quick, give me some of that ha'idam ha'idam hazeh. And that is why he was called Edom. See this word ha'adom, ha'adom, that's the word Edom, adom. Edom means red sauce. Red sauce in the Hebrew language. So there's comedy in There's a comedic irony in this text, okay? He comes in quick, stuff my face with that ha'edom, ha'edom. Stuff my face with that red, red stuff. That I don't even know what it is. It's a, it's a, a gelatinous red vegan mess. Stuff my face with it, I'm starved. And ever since then, he was known as Edom. He was known as red sauce. Here's the truth. Forever you will be most, of, most defined by the appetites you fulfill on a regular basis. Forever you will be most defined by what you stuff your face with. You can stuff it with booze. You can stuff it with drugs. You can stuff it with dope. You can stuff it with consumer goods. You can stuff it with sports. You can stuff it with all-night gaming. You can stuff it with pornography. You can stuff it with sexual proclivity. You can stuff it with acquiring cars and badges and, and all the trappings of our society. You can stuff it with workaholism. You can stuff it with the quest for pursuit and pleasure and possessions and position. And if you do, you'll be defined by it. You'll be defined by it. Because appetites threaten birthrights. Have a look at the rest of the story. He says, let me stuff my face with it. And Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew and he ate and drank and then he got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Let's come full circle. This is the verse that changed my life. You and I have to ask ourselves, what hungers and longings and yearnings and desires in my life are just red, red stuff? And they threaten me and they entice me and they tempt me. But really... It's just red, red stuff. And if you trade, if you swap, if you pursue, if you stuff your face with it, you know what you're really doing? You're throwing away your birthright. I could be a king. This is the craziness of the story. Esau is the firstborn. He already has his father's authority in a kingdom. He doesn't even need his brother's stew. He could tell any servant, make me something now. But humans are masterful at missing the warnings of their danger zones. These are the human danger zones. I like to use the acronym BLAST. Bored, lonely, angry, stressed, tired. If you let 
the hunger from being out in the field drive your future. And especially when you're feeling negative emotion, when you're, when you're weary, when you're exhausted, when you're famished, when you've got a hunger. Here's the question. Am I selling my birthright for a bowl of red, red stuff? I've got a calling. Let's, let's, let's remember our list. I've got a calling. I have the right to become a child of God. I have every spirit blessing in heavenly places. I have a divine calling and I have a rich inheritance in God's people. But it could all be undone with a vegan dish. I wonder in this room how many of us just need to work out, hey, God, have I let my appetites threaten my birthright? Let me give you what the New Testament looks back on on this verse. See to it, the author to the Hebrew says, that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit his blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. And how does that, how does eating the red, red stuff equate to sexual immorality well it's simple it's the it's the greek word porn pornos and in the old testament and the new testament the word pornos it means prostitution and it's often a shorthand um, accusation against god's people for idolatry when, when they go and worship another god they're prostituting themselves they're being immoral to god their husband and the author to the Hebrew says, see to it that you don't commit adultery, uh, that, you, that you don't quit commit idolatry like Esau did. What Esau really did, he was cheating on his birthright. What Esau really did, it was like if he was married and he committed an affair, he, he, he dated the wrong stuff, he, he made out with the wrong things. And later he lived to regret it, man. Later he worked out, I've missed it and I want that blessing. I want that calling. I want that inheritance. Well, you can't have it now, man, because you swapped it for a bowl of red, red stuff. I remember the first time I read this scripture, Pastor Wayne Alcorn was preaching on it. And I was a drug addict and an alcoholic and I'd just come to faith. But man, I was still staying up all night, three nights in a row, gaming on Nintendo 64 drinking, snorting, smoking, and, and, and sort of, I'd said yes to the gospel, but still hadn't had much formation. And this verse rocked my world with this question. Am I selling my birthright for a bowl of red, red stuff? You can have whatever you want, but you can have a ministry. You can have your gifts and your service devoted to kingdom work. Have a look what Paul says about that. You can have a bowl of red stuff or you can have prayer that makes a difference. Remember what James said. You can have a life characterized by the leading and the governing and the presence of the Holy Spirit. A spirit-filled life. Look at what Paul said to the Galatians. Or you can have a life filled with red, red stuff. We can have a life of mission together, a life where we make a difference around the world. Ask of me, God says, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Wow. Or I could have a bowl of red, red stuff. You can have a life where your work 
and your business is mission where what you do every day makes a kingdom difference or you can just have a bowl of red, red stuff. You can have a flourishing life to pursue the wholeness and the abundance that Jesus promised. You can have a life of wholeness and healing. Or you can have a life of red, red stuff. Would you bow your heads? Close your eyes all over this room. I just want to finish in praying for you today. This scripture changed my life as I realized I was just pursuing meaningless gunk, red stuff, when really what I had is a call, a birthright, an inheritance. I pray for you, friend. I pray that your appetites wouldn't threaten your birthright. See, we all have appetites. We all have hunger. Every now and then we all go wandering, and man, we get hungrier when we're wandering. Started at the beginning of this message. To all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. So in the gospel, what we do is we don't sell our birthright, nor do we buy our birthright. We don't bargain for it, and we don't trade it. We receive it as gift from King Jesus. We receive him and we receive that birthright. And we get a calling. We get an inheritance. We're invited into destiny. Don't trade it. I pray all over this room right now under the sound of my voice that God would speak to you, that God would show you. I pray that your heart and your mind would be open to God. God, how have my appetites threatened my birthright? How have I been squandering my fortune? How have I been squandering this birthright in Jesus? Not to condemn yourself, but just to wake up and be aware. I don't want to trade what God has for me for a bowl of red stuff anymore. I pray for you, brother, sister. I pray that you wouldn't settle for something meaningless when God has calling and destiny and inheritance and status and every spirit blessing for you. I pray, I pray today that you would make some quality decisions. God, my life has to be lived according to my values. My priorities need addressing. My priorities need resetting. God, my choices need addressing. I've, I've been choosing the wrong stuff. I'm pushing aside that wandering. I'm pushing aside that dish. And now I'm saying, man, uh, I've got to be faithful to my calling. Maybe you don't know what your calling is. Man, I've got to pursue my calling. Instead of pursuing, medicating against the pain of not walking in my calling. That's something for some of us in this room today. I pray for you. I pray. I pray your heart would be hungry for what God has for you. And not for the ways that your appetites would threaten that birthright. I pray as you leave here today that you'd leave with one sigh in your heart that says, God, I'm going to pursue that birthright. Everything you have for me, everything you have for me, not for the stuff I seek on my own. And I pray for you that God would minister to you in your hunger, in your need, in the gaps in your life, in the vacant places in your heart, in the broken places in your heart. The appetites you got from your dad, the appetites you got from your culture, the appetites you got from being out wandering. I pray God would minister to that, but I pray he'd minister to it by giving you, Jesus, every spirit blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
And I pray in this place, every heart, every mind would be a heart of mind that says, God, I need to draw some lines in the sand and say, that's enough there. That's enough of that. That, That's enough of feasting and trading. And now I'm pursuing what you have for me, God. Come on, what is that? Why don't you just ask God right now? God, show me. Show me. For some of us, it's come on, man, pursue your calling. For some of us, it's come on, pursue that inheritance in God's people. Pursue your mission. Pursue your ministry. Pursue your service. Pursue what God has for you. Pursue your identity in Christ. Don't trade it to be liked by others. Don't trade it for that faulty relationship. Don't trade it for that habit or that hobby or that hunger. I pray for you, friend. Pray God would pour His grace out upon you. Give you the strength today to say, okay, God. I'm listening to the warning of Esau. And today, I'm making a choice as I leave this place. I'm going with my birthright.